and be seated, please. As a kid growing up in the Beamsville Church of Christ, every Sunday morning I would look over to the far left side and on the second pew sat the Fleming family. If you're not from Beamsville, Ontario, that probably means nothing to you, but for everybody from Beamsville, it seemed to mean pretty much everything. When Art was a young man, Art Fleming, he started a little business called the Chicken Hatchery. That Chicken Hatchery grew and expanded and before long, the Flemings became well-known in our town. If you went to the public library, you would be going to the Fleming Public Library. The local university built a brand new building when I was in high school called the Flemings Classroom Building. See, the Flemings were a family that was well-known, and their, their children were all at some point or another a part of the business. Eventually, their daughter married somebody from Texas and went off to Texas. They had a son who went to Russia to work as a missionary. Another son didn't want anything to do with the family business, and he became a lawyer. And there were two sons left who continued to work for the business. One worked the farms, and the other worked the chicken hatchery. I started working at Fleming's when I was uh, uh, about 16 or 17 years old. And one of the sons was my manager, and I found out pretty quickly he wasn't exactly the most well-respected of the managers there. His hours were sporadic. Uh, his passion was pretty lifeless, and his management style was pretty frustrating to people who worked for him. In the early 2000s, Dad decided to sell the family business. A part of the negotiations in selling the business was that Dad guaranteed for six months that two of his sons would have jobs. After that six months, the company was welcome to do whatever they wished with his two sons. At six months and one day, one of the sons was promoted, and the other was fired. The very son that I used to work for who had certain experiences with. But what was perhaps most surprising about his story was how blindsided he felt about the fact that he was fired. I had a friend who was working there still at the time who had said when he talked to him about the possibility of in six months he might not have a job, this son always said, my last name is Fleming's. And Fleming's is on the sign out front. There is no possible way that I ever get fired. And I wonder what it would have been like if the, the new bosses, or the new owners sat him down and said, we don't care what your last name is. What we care about is how you lead and how you work. And I wonder if things would have turned out differently for him. Our text this morning, Joshua 7, is one of those sit-down moments where essentially the Israelites are told, I don't care what your family name is. Ministry and obedience and service to God is not about credentials. It's about something different. So this morning, if you'd open your Bibles to Joshua 7, that's where we're going to be. Now, if you are afraid that somehow you, flew, you fell into a Rip Van Winkle long-term sleep and you somehow missed Joshua 3, 4, 5, and 6, you didn't. We're intentionally taking Joshua 7 because I think one of the things that we find in this text is that Joshua compares two people. He compares someone named Achan, who we will meet in Joshua 7, to someone named Rahab, who we first met in Joshua 2. But we now meet Rahab again in the end part of Joshua 6. See, Rahab shows up at the beginning of the Joshua conquest, and she shows up again at the end. And I think a part of what the reason is is because 
Joshua is inviting us to compare the differences between these two people, Rahab and Joshua. So what happens if we put their resumes side by side? Well, the very first thing, we look under the name category and we realize there is Rahab, who is a resident of Jericho of Canaan, and her occupation is a prostitute. We put her resume beside Achan's, and we find that Achan is the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah. His residence, well, he doesn't have a full-time residence because he works too much, spending his time on the road. And what is his occupation? He is a warrior in the army of God Almighty. And as you look at those two resumes, it begins to be very clear that Achan clearly has pedigree. Achan is the most likely to succeed. In fact, nowhere in Joshua have we had anybody introduced with as much fanfare as Achan's introduction. We are given the generations back that he comes from all the way to Judah, to the very Judah who, if you remember, was called to be a lion. He is the very Judah to whom we said that his brothers will worship him or who will bless him. The very Judah to whom it is said that the scepter will not depart from the line of Judah. That's the heritage and the pedigree that Achan comes from. But how much in God's books does pedigree matter? As I think about Rahab and her comparison to Achan, I can't help but thinking of a story that happened in 2019. It was the Chief Justice, now deceased Chief Justice Antony Scalia, was there doing a presentation about law to a law school called the American University Washington College of Law. If you've heard, not heard of it, it's because it's not really the most prestigious place in the world. And afterwards, he was doing a and question and answer session, and a, a girl named Christina, who was a law student there, came up and she said, I'm hardworking, I'm dedicated, um, I, I do jobs as they're given to me, and I want to know, Mr. Scalia, how I can be outrageously successful in the law. Scalia's response to Christina was that in his line of work, that you cannot make mistakes. And so he's committed in the hiring process to make sure that he doesn't make any mistakes because he can't afford them. And so he says, as a result, I'm going to be picking from the law schools that are basically the hardest to get into because they admit the brightest. What Scalia was saying without saying it is, Christina, you could never be hired as one of my law clerks because you simply don't have the pedigree that's necessary. Scalia says, if you send me a resume from Harvard or Yale or Stanford, or, which are the top law schools, I will consider you. But if you come from any other law school, I'm not even going to look at your resume. See, Aiken is the guy who did his undergrad at Yale did his master's degree at Stanford and got his doctoral work from Harvard. And Rahab is the person who didn't even graduate high school. If you're going through a hiring process, which of these two people would you hire? Now, in the book of Joshua, this is not about a hiring process, but it's in fact about something called the judgment of God. That, that there is in this book certain people who would be selected to fall under something that is called the ban. And the question we have to be asking ourselves is, what will happen to the Canaanites? Will they all fall under the ban? And what will happen to the Israelites? Will they all be excluded from this thing called the ban? So for us to really understand what's happening in Joshua 7, we have to understand this thing called the ban. Because we're told 
that Achan took some of the devoted things, the harem, and the anger of the Lord burned against the Israelites. So I'm going to invite you now. We'll just get it out of our system. I'm going to put this slide up here. And all of you take a deep breath and go, oh, just do it with me. Oh. Okay. I have gotten feedback that people don't always like it when we do the hard work of going back to the original language. But sometimes you just have to do it. So that's what we're going to do today. Because there's this word that's used in Joshua 7, verse 1. The Hebrew word is harem that is translated sometimes as devoted things. But it's translated differently in different Bibles. Sometimes it's called the devoted things. Sometimes it's called the things under the ban. And sometimes it's called the accursed things. Now, this word harem means different things in different places in the Old Testament. But in Joshua specifically, it refers to, as a noun, things like items or people that are dedicated to God. So God will look at something and declare that thing to be harem. And when something is declared to be harem, then it must be haremed. It becomes a verb or an action. So the verb harem means to utterly destroy or to completely destroy something. So here is an example. If I have a book, I usually open it up and I write property of Craig Ford on that front cover. But once something is declared to be harem, you now scratch out property of Craig Ford and you now write property of God Almighty. And when something is, is harem, as a sign that this belongs to God, that thing must be utterly destroyed. So you take it to the fire and you throw it in. That harem thing has now been haremed. It has been utterly and completely destroyed. See, in Joshua chapter 6, verse 17, we are told that the city of Jericho is to be haremed. Because Jericho has been considered harem under God. Therefore, Israel's job is to go in and utterly destroy everything. And as we go into Joshua 6 and we ask the question, what's the likelihood that any Canaanite gets out of the harem? We'd say, well, no, because for something to be harem means it must be haremed, which means it must be completely destroyed. But we are told in Joshua 6 that Rahab the prostitute and all that were in her house shall live because she hid the messengers we sent. And so that's exactly what happens. Rahab and all her family are saved from the harem because of the act of faith that we studied about last week in Joshua chapter 2. So if you're looking at the news article, the news article would say Joshua, or sorry, Jericho harremed by faith Rahab and her family excluded. But then if you were to look over at the classified ads, you would find out that God has a job opening. And that job opening would say Canaanites welcome to apply. No elite degrees required, just a trusting faith. Everything else can be taught. God's hiring system is very different than our hiring system. In Joshua 6, when it ends, we find out God's nothing like Antonin Scalia, who doesn't just say, hey, I'm just looking at the top line of the resume. If it doesn't say Harvard or Yale or Stanford, I'm not even looking at it. God says, I don't care what elite degrees you have. I don't care what pedigree you have. I care about what you do on the basis of faith in response to me and to my ways. So we do find out that the Israelites broke faith in regard to the devoted things, to those things that were harmed. And what Achan did was he took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the Israelites. Now, one of the things that we'll find throughout Joshua is this interesting connection between individual and corporate personality. 
I mean, if you were living at the time of Joshua, as you read Joshua 7.1, you should be pretty upset. Okay? Joshua took something. And as a result, what happens, we find that Israel has broken faith. See, what we find is that when you are a son of Israel, everything you do is reflective of the sons, plural, of Israel. You never act just as an isolated individual. All of your actions as a child of Israel is reflective of all the other children of Israel. Now, if you've never experienced this, I had a situation uh, back when I was doing youth ministry in Houston that helped me understand individual and corporate responsibility and how those two things affect each other. We were driving in the church van from Houston, Texas to uh, Medina, Texas. There's a couple of girls, probably 11, 12, or 13 years old, sitting there beside each other, and they started kind of bickering back and forth. And that gets pretty fun after about two and a half seconds, right? And so I told the girls, I said, you girls need to cut it out, otherwise I'm going to have to intervene. Within like 10 minutes, they're now turned facing each other and flat out kicking each other, trying to get space because, you know, they've drawn that line and don't you cross the line, and they kept crossing the line. We were part of a caravan of three vehicles on the highway, and I pulled over, and the two cars behind us pulled over, and I took the girls out to where everybody could see them, just about you know, 10 or 15 feet out from the van, and I said, all I'm doing here is embarrassing you guys, because when you get back to the van, everyone's going to say, what did Craig say to you? And the only thing I'm going to say to you is, is that people are going to realize that you've been brought out and embarrassed. And then we got back in, and they didn't bother each other again. The very next Sunday that I was at church, that this young, one of these young girls was there. Uh, she came up to me with her mom kind of closely in tow, and you could tell, heads down. She said, Craig, I, I really want to apologize uh, for my behavior uh, last week in the van, and I'm really sorry about what I did. I said, oh, no, that's okay. But you could tell, Mom, it wasn't good enough, and so Mom's nudging her for more. And she says, and I'm really sorry because I came home and realized how much I had shamed my family. And I thought, whoa, that's pretty intense. Because her parents, Rick and Anita, realized when Candace behaves a certain way, it is not just Candace's name that's getting dragged through the mud, it is her parents' name as well. See, individual and corporate responsibility means when you act as a part of something, your behavior is not just isolated to you, but the whole group now shares a part of the shame for what you've done. And that seems to be what happens here with Achan. Achan breaks faith. As an individual, but all of Israel, all people who are sons of Israel, are held responsible and accountable for his behavior. Now what happens uh, is the Israelites, unaware that they are under the wrath of God, because they're unaware of what Achan did, they go off to war against Ai. Um, They are quickly defeated in the process, and 36 people are killed. 36 people represents, there there would have been three 1,000-member troops sent which means 12 out of each of the 3,000 or each of the 1,000 groups died. And so Israel gets the message loud and clear. 12 people died per 1,000 people. Hmm, how many tribes of Israel are there? There's 12. God's sending us a message that somehow we've missed something. And so the people come to God in confession and in repentance. Their hearts melt. They have this strong reaction. And they fear that all the inhabitants of the land will hear about what's happened. They will surround us and cut off our name from all the earth. And the reason they had such a strong reaction is because they realized they were being treated like the Canaanites. Somehow, without them even knowing it, they went from being God's special people to now God's people under judgment. And they're wondering, how did this happen? How did we go from being the elect to now being treated just as if we were Canaanites? 
And if the harem is going somewhere, it is entirely possible that the harem is going to fall on us. And that Israel itself might be utterly destroyed. See, we get the sense in Joshua 7 that Israel has become too comfortable with God and too confident in themselves. And there's lots of places as you read through Joshua 7 that you'll get the sense too comfortable with God, too confident in themselves, which is actually pretty ironic, isn't it? Because remember why they didn't get to go into land in the first place? It's like, oh, we can't do it. I mean, there's no possible way. And God says, okay. And then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They have one little battle where God knocks down the wall and says, okay, go pick up the pieces. And they come out of that and say, yay, we're great. We're awesome. We're amazing. We're unstoppable. And that's human nature, isn't it? I mean, we're either way underconfident or we're way overconfident. See, when the spies report back in Joshua 7, they never mention God giving the people or God being involved in it, which is the first of the spy reports in Deuteronomy and in Joshua where God is neglected. They feel like they can do this apart from God. See, what the Israelites need to remember is that their special relationship with God does not mean they can disregard the terms of the covenant and still have hope in his deliverance. We can become so comfortable with God that we think surely God wouldn't do anything to me. When we were living in New Guinea, there was a night probably around 1 or 2 in the morning that I got a phone call from one of our teammates, and he said, somebody is, uh, is ramming into our fence in, in their truck. They're, they're running into it, they're getting in reverse, and they're running into it again, and they couldn't get a hold of the police. So I'm a pretty intimidating guy, so they chose to call me, uh, knowing that my mere presence brings fear to mortals. Um, so I started heading over there. Along the way, I actually passed. The policeman had just come in the police station. They came, and we went down there. By the time we got there, the car sitting in the middle of the cul-de-sac just stopped. The police go up. They have a little conversation. They come back, and they say, everything's fine. She's heading home. Well, my teammate wasn't satisfied with that answer, and he ran, and he took the keys out of the, out of the car because it was clear that the driver was drunk, and he said, she is in no condition to be driving home. Why are you letting her drive home? And the answer was because she was the governor's mother. Because when you're the governor's mother, you can do whatever you want. There's no punishment. There's everybody in law enforcement is afraid because they don't want to deal with you or mess with you. And the question is, is God going to treat the Israelites like the governor's mother? And say, you know what, we're going to just give you a pass. If your last name is son of Israel, do whatever you want, behave in any way you wish, and simply because of your name or of your relationship to me, I'm going to let you get away with whatever you want. And Joshua 7 is the text that says God won't do that. God's not going to say, as long as you show me your ID and if you can prove you're a child of Israel, hey, Behave any way you wish and act any way you wish because you are covered by the covenant. No, in fact, God offers a serious warning. He says, therefore, the Israelites are unable to stand before their enemies. They turn their backs to their enemies because they have become a thing devoted for destruction themselves. See what God's saying? Israel, you are now harem. You are subject to the utter destruction. Unless... I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. You need to keep the harem promise that was made. And if you refuse to keep the harem promise, don't go dropping names because God is no respecter simply of those who put their trust in their name or their pedigree 
or their status in his presence. So Israel is given a choice, either do what they were called to do in the harem or themselves become haremed. And so that's why we have this strong reaction. You, you, you know people are listening to a text when they find it as offensive as it's supposed to be. There's a couple of people in this front row, and then when they talked about stoning people, they're like, what? I mean, that's, that's not the God we talk about, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. And then we have this text where we got people getting stoned, not like stoned, but stoned, because he stole something. So what's happening with this God and with this harsh punishment? God, I think, is sending a warning. And the warning is this. There are those under God's covenant who are like Rahab. Those who were to be harmed. Those who were to be utterly destroyed. Who on the basis of their faith in his covenant were saved from it. But then there are some who can become comfortable and proud and smug. Because they think they have pedigree. And they think they have heritage. See, both of these folks have reminders to Joshua's day as it's written in 625. Rahab's family has lived in Israel ever since. And Joshua 726, this great heap of stones is piled atop Achan and his family, uh, and his family remains to this day. In other words, what the, this is happening later, they're going back to the story and saying, you need to remember this lesson. The lesson of Rahab. And the lesson of Achan. See, Joshua 2 is going to culminate with this question. Choose today whom you're going to serve. And he's not just going to be asking the Canaanites. He's going to be asking the very Israelites. And he wants the Israelites to know, if you choose not to serve God, the benefits of being the people of God will depart from you. And you too will become the harem of God. There's this old preacher's Proverbs that says that our job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I think that's the mission of these two stories side by side, Rahab and Achan. I think most of our churches choose to be either one of these two churches. It's either the church of Rahab or the church of Achan. The church of Rahab says, God wants you to be a part of the family. And God loves you no matter what you do. And you come into the family, and when you're in the family, then you're safe. I mean, that's the kind of God we serve. That there's no risk. There's nothing to be worried about. Just come in, and you'll be safe. And then I think there's the church of Achan that likes all of us to be worried and afraid and nervous. The God of judgment and the God of punishment it was said when Jonathan Edwards would preach, it was as if the floor would open and you would fall directly into hell. The church of Achan. So which is the right one? Rahab or Achan? And I think we're coming to find it is Rahab and Achan. To tell the story of God means we tell the story of Rahab, and it means we also tell the story of Achan. She so might be wondering, I mean, should I be worried, Craig? We've got this gruesome picture of, of God. Should I be worried? And the question is, 
I don't know. Should you be? See, this is the point in the sermon that I hand the ministry off to the Holy Spirit. So that some of you might need to be comforted. Because, see, Rahab's family was saved by Rahab's faithfulness. Are you trusting and depending in Jesus Christ? Is he your hope? Is he your foundation? Is he your salvation? And those who are are hoping in Christ, there is nothing to be worried about because of Christ's faithfulness as we live faithfully in him. But there might just be some Achans this morning. It's not my job to find the Achans. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to find the Achans. People who say, hey, I mean, I've been a member of the churches of Christ my entire life. What do I have to be worried about? People who say, my dad was an elder. What do I have to be worried about? People who say, I am an elder. What do I have to be worried about? The warning of Joshua 7 is that we can become so comfortable with our pedigree, with our degrees, with our heritage, that we forget the role of faithful obedience to God. And so for some of you, the ministry of the Holy Spirit will be to comfort you. You don't need to be worried. You don't need to be concerned because God has brought Rahab into his people. But for others, the answer might be you've become so comfortable with God. You got this resume you send up to God and you say, man, and a boo-boo, you can't get me. Did you notice our Joshua 7 text that was read earlier? These people, they come into the temple and they say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Like, God can't get me. I'm in this temple. I've got the right last name. See, Joshua 7 is a warning to all those young Fleming boys who think just because their name's on the company door, they're going to keep their job. Joshua 7 is a warning to anybody who thinks that just because they went to Harvard or Yale or Stanford, they're going to get the job. Joshua 7 is a warning to anybody who thinks, I'm the governor's mother. There's nothing they're going to do to me. But Joshua 6 is a comfort to anybody who says, oh man, I could never get that job. I could never be loved. I could never be accepted as the people of God. And so the invitation is to ask the question of where is your faith? Where's your trust? If you're trusting this morning in what Christ has accomplished on the cross and living in faithfulness, then we can celebrate as those who once had no hope but now have hope. But if we find ourselves saying, yeah, because of all of these things, I'm sure if we're trusting in something other than the cross, our trust is misplaced. And if you find yourself afflicted by the message this morning, I want to invite you, we're going to sing a song in just a minute, to come back and find someone to talk to them and pray with them. Joshua 7 is to say, if you find yourself far too comfortable with God, you need to do something about it. Maybe the Spirit is calling you into action. But before we sing that song, I do want to offer this first word of praise and then second, a word of blessing. Remember that you were at one time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Through Jesus Christ, we have been brought into a people that we did not previously belong to. And if that's the source of your hope, then that's a reason for joy. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And this week we go with the confidence, knowing that we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you'd like to respond, do that while we stand and while we sing this next song together.